Oh, I didn't know we were starting. Hello. Hey. Oh, God. I'm Sarah. I'm Aaron. I'm Morgan. And this is Sinister Sunrise. And I have the game. Megan, come over here. <laughs> Let's get started. Well, what? Sarah Sarah was very much like, we're going to get over here. We're going to get started right away. Yeah. And that didn't happen. This so I never even it's... attempt to crack a whip. There's no whip cracking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. 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 Okay. So... You don't really need a piece of paper because we're going to play Cameo round two. So Megan looked up six famous people and we are going to figure out or try to guess how much it costs for them to make a Cameo um, if we were to buy one. So whoever gets the closest one, closest amount to the actual one gets a point and then we'll go from there. So technically the worst out there. Nope. <laughs> Listen, we all know what happened last time. I was like $100 and they were like, no, it's a lot. It's mm-hmm. a lot. So technically we have, um, so I think just five. Cameo round two. Let's yes. Do it. So we have five and then the sixth person, I know we have six, but the sixth person will be if there's a tiebreaker. Okay. Yes. I volunteer to be tied, but it's the sixth one. <laughs> so who is um, the first person we are guessing? Gabby Douglas. Who's oh. that? Olympian? Yeah. Olympic gymnast. Oh. The Olympic? I'm. Listen, guys, it's some that. Gabby Douglas? I'm going to say $30. I'm saying $200. I'm saying $100. It's $410. That's bullshit. <laughs> it feels like a beach. <laughs> I will take that too, honey. Oh, wait. Well, none of us got it. No, well, Wait, whoever's closest. closest. Right. Yeah, so yeah. You, we're doing that would closest. Be Sarah. Okay. Will <sighs> you just keep? Will you just keep points? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Cool. You have the best. Point. Okay. Number two. Okay, I'm gonna butcher his last name, but Paul Lieberstein. He's Toby from The Office. <sighs> oh. Okay. Toby from The Office. Okay. Well. I think seventy dollars. Toby from The Office. I'm going to guess one hundred dollars. I'll guess fifty. Four hundred ninety-five dollars. What? <laughs> Who are these? Wait, I saw Toby from The Office. Yes. So I won. Wow. Yeah, I think too, some people some on there donate a lot to charity, though. Like some yeah. people just strictly donate to charity. So I'm okay, sure. okay, okay. I hope so. so. Can you imagine how cool you feel knowing your three minutes is worth five hundred dollars? I mean, ours is, but of course, we're very yeah. expensive. Megan's podcast. paying us to be on the <laughs> <laughs> I am joking. We're, we paid her. Anyway, <laughs> we're actually jesters for her full time, so yes. Okay. Lindsay Lohan. Oh, but be a different story if it was 2002, baby. I was going to say, trick question. Does she make everyone pay in rubles because she is now <laughs> Russian? <laughs> oh, Lord. I am going to guess $300. I'm going to guess $700. Whoa, Aaron. $413. Oh, $215. Damn. <clears throat> I don't know. I thought Lindsay would ball out. <laughs> if it was cheaper, I know we would have already bought it. So. Hey. <laughs> I don't know how she sounds. Okay. I hope All not right. like that. <laughs> uh, the next one's Kevin O'Leary, a.k.a. Mr. Wonderful from Shark Tank. Oh, Whoa. he's Wait. also very rich. Is he the is he the mean one? Uh, yes, technically. Oh. I sorry, oh. Kevin. The tough one. Okay. Okay. Five hundred bucks. 
I'll say 120. 600. $1,200. Mm. Mm. Doesn't okay. he have enough money? Maybe he's a charity donator. Yeah. We're going to think on the bright side of Kevin. Jeez. And mm. also think on the bright side that I'm smoking you guys. Let's go. Ooh. <laughs> As yes. was like, this is the worst game. Right, I know, right? <laughs> technically, technically you won, but let's do number five and yes. see. Uh, Dr. Sandra Lee. AKA Dr. Pimple Popper. Ooh. From TLC. Ooh. $310. $250. $410. <laughs> $250, Aaron. You nailed it. I got, I got one. <laughs> I came out of here with one point. Yeah, so there's the tie between Sarah and Aaron. Oh, yeah, so we so do have to do should six. Should I not answer? No, I, yeah. Okay. Okay, oh, uh, so just for me and Sarah. Is Akon. I hope we all know who Akon is. Yes. Is that Akon? Yes. Oh. <laughs> I was like, whoa. <laughs> it came out just so naturally that I was like, wait, 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 hold on a minute. I think he's $270. I think he's $400. Have you learned nothing, Sarah? $999. I keep thinking one of these has to be cheaper. Well, I was lowballing it for whoa! a while. All right, I'm last today and mine's sad. So you're welcome. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> Wonderful. Okay. All right. Oh, Morgan. Wonderful. Yeah. <sighs> well, today I am. I'm pulling. I'm pulling a, a story time, and I will just be reading from the site hauntedjourneys.com for you guessed it. You probably didn't. New Year's Eve haunted stories. So sticking with the theme of December, aka our Christmas episode we recorded last week is coming out this week. Yeah, so this one is just in time for the new year. So uh, again, I'm fully citing my source, hauntedjourneys.com. The title is... Can you spell that out for me, please? Oh my god. (laughs) I just want to double check. You know I will. I'll mess it up though. Is there any backsplashes? Or backslashes. God damn it. <laughs> Go take a nap. Backslash. Are they redoing their kitchens? The title is Nine New Year's Eve Spooky Stories That Will Keep You Up Until Dawn! Exclamation <gasps> mark. I'm probably not going to read all nine. I'd like to leave some air of mystery so you guys can go read the rest while you're, when, after you listen to our episode. So, mm-hmm. all right. The first one that I'm going to read is Lady in Red Phantom. <laughs> on new year's eve of 1920 the drake hotel celebrated its opening night with much glamour and tinsel it was both magnificent and tragic it was magnificent because the drake was to be one of chicago's most beautiful and celebrated hotels it was tragic because according to legend it was the night the quote woman in red ended her life on this day a man and his fiance parentheses, who was clad in brilliant red silk, attended the gala held in the Drake's Gold Coast room. The man stepped away and did not return, so his fiancée went looking for him. She found him enthralled by another woman. Oh, my. (sighs) The shame. What a hussy. (laughs) 
The devastated woman climbed to the roof and jumped to her death. Since then, guests at the Drake have reported seeing her apparition in the Gold Coast Room, Palm Court, and on the top 10th floor as well as the roof. Condemned to replay her final night, her restless soul wanders, attempting to find peace with the final tragic chapter of her life. In addition to spontaneous phantom appearances in her red garment, workers and guests have also also get a creepy and uncomfortable feeling in the ballroom. Ooh. So she jumped from the roof. Yeah. No one's worth jumping from the roof for. I was about to say, bitch, push him first. Yeah. <laughs> right? Go slap, not, go slap him. Not and then worth it. Give him a hard divorce. And then you <laughs> go up to your hotel room and you start charging the mini bar. Okay? Anyway. It's on if it's on his. Yeah, yeah. all I'm saying is no man is worth it. Don't mm-hmm. jump. Don't jump. Call us yeah. or yes. write us at sinistersunrisepodcast at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> give me your your ideas. I need. I like. I think I do better research when someone tells me what to do. When I pick it, I'm like la la la. Like, oh, this is fun. This is cool. But if someone gives me like an assignment, I will not miss a single thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that I. Ch- I mean, I probably will because it's me, but, (laughs) you know. Okay. Um, This one is called The Phantom Texter. Oh, by the way, a lot of these stories were on similar websites. A couple of them do come from, like, Reddit and stuff like that, so some of them may sound familiar. Okay. Again, The Phantom Texter. One story found on Reddit told a spooky story that occurred on New Year's Eve. A fella started receiving, I, again, a fella, I would never say that, I'm, I'm reading what is on this, a fella, a fella. <laughs> Gotta say it in the right hue, a fella started saying. <laughs> a fella started receiving text messages from an unknown number on New Year's Eve that said, I'm outside. I'm gonna change my accent back now. Yeah. <laughs> the, meshes, the messages began to escalate, and at one point, the mystery texter claimed to be outside the house watching him and his friends. The text continued throughout the night with the texter describing the guy's car and sending more creepy texts while they were driving home that indicated that the texter was watching him. Oh. Whether, uh, oh no, excuse me. Uh, when others tried to call the number that was he was receiving the text from, they got a message saying it was not a working phone number. <laughs> while the messages eventually stopped, the fear never really went away. He later said, uh, I haven't dived too deep into this. On one hand, I felt that uh, something really bad could happen if I keep probing it. Nothing has happened so far. But on the other hand, I don't have any closure and sometimes I get paranoid about getting another text message. Have you guys ever gotten like a random number? Like anything creepy? Nothing creepy. Oh. I don't think anything. Wasn't there, but wasn't there that thing going around? Was it this year, last year? When, like, you have your, like, text message, like, your number buddy or whatever, and people were just sending random people messages like, hey, you're my number buddy. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. yeah, yeah, Like, yeah. that happened, and I never responded. I don't know what that is at all. It was something that happened, I thought, like, last year or something. Yeah, I... That was, like, trending. I think it was last <laughs> year. I got a text message, and I and, it, and they didn't say number buddy at first, but they were like, hey, is this Morgan? And I was like... Oh. Who are you? And they were like, I'm your number buddy. Um, I know your name because everyone who calls me asks, is this Morgan? And I'm like, oh. um, what? And they're like, yeah, because my number is like, it was like literally like my number has a lot of sevens in it. So it was just like one off. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, okay, well, sorry about that. Like, I don't know. And then, then they kept trying to like have a conversation with me. And I was like, I know I'm blocking you, buddy. I don't know. Mm-hmm. No, thank you. Yeah. 
Yeah. Strangers, stay away from them. <laughs> They're bad. <laughs> Even via text, it is a stranger and it's scary. Listen. Okay, man. Of course, we have to have a classic, Lady in White. So here we go. Have you ever experienced a stranger suddenly turning up at a party you hosted? Apparently, this is what occurred in this story. An unexpected guest materialized out of nowhere and joined the storyteller's New Year's Eve party. All of the doors and windows were locked, and no one admitted to letting the old woman who was dressed in all white into the house. Can you imagine having a bopping party at like 24 years old and this old ass lady comes in? You're like, hi, ma'am. Can I get you a cup of tea? Like, did I disturb are you? you? Yeah, yes. like, what? So, um, here we go. <clears throat> Being in the festive mood, the hostess did not ask her to leave. Apparently, the quote, lady in white, reported that she was lost and couldn't find the party she was actually heading to. Ooh. <laughs> Upon leaving the party, she, quote, dropped two scarves on the doorstep. To this day, no one knows how she got in. Many say this was a symbol of a prediction that may not be good. To add to this mystery, the writer adds that her cousin saw the same woman in his dreams a few nights later. No one ever saw her again. Mm. So was she real or not real? I think she was real. I don't know which one's creepier, like... Just a random person that is confused and maybe dangerous walking into your house or a spirit. It's almost like, um, yeah. Like what's the, like, what's the worst part of that? Yeah. Like, and also hearing her speak. Mm-hmm. No it's one thing if they like, you know, you catch them out of the corner of your eye and then whoop, they're gone. It's like, okay, that's weird. But you like talk to this person ghost. Like, mm-hmm. all right. <clears throat> Channeling Norman Bates. This one is pretty disturbing, although not related to a haunting. Dot, dot, dot. Yet. (laughs) According to CNN, a Florida man who told police he was angry with his mother used an axe to decapitate her on New Year's Eve of 2014. You know I'm a sucker for, like, new, newer cases. (sighs) The creepiest part is the mugshot taken after the man was arrested in the photo. He is smiling like one would for a childhood school picture. The man was apparently fed up with his mother nagging him about moving some boxes in the attic. Sheriff Bob Galtier, pardon me, told CNN. I'm sorry, sir. (laughs) Could this have been the channeling of Norman Bates' fictitious character? Like, listen... Oh, and of course, they, they have a photo. And like, whenever I was like rolling through, I was like, ooh, that is creepy. And then I like read it and I'm like, oh, that is Norman Bates. <laughs> oh, whoa. <laughs> like, yep. So. No, thank you. All right. I'll do one final story and then a little fact at the end. So. No, uh, this is the last one. The zombie that came rolling in. Another person claimed that the not quite human creature they had, they and a friend encountered on New Year's Eve was real. That's when we saw it. Something that looked like a naked person, but wasn't quite human and waddled down the street towards us. What? It moved as though it was half squatting. And because of this, its hands dragging along the ground as they hung limp at its sides. Morgan, listen, I wasn't having a great day. You don't have to put in a scary story about me with a hangover walking to get my coffee. Come on. Come on, girl. Your knuckles don't drag on the ground. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> My legs are way too short. 
everything else. I mean, but the waddle is fine. <laughs> yes, the waddle. <laughs> it's the one word I'd use to describe your walk. <laughs> <sighs> oh, okay, uh, this is still a storyteller. I couldn't make out its face, and my friend Max told me later that he couldn't either. It was also making a throaty, gurgly noise as if it was almost choking on something. The author and mm. Max did the only sensible thing. They got the heck out of there. Fair. Yes. Fair. Mm-hmm. Very fair. And then um, I just came across at the bottom of the article. It just says, bonus, did you know? Mm-hmm. New Year's Eve originally began when the Babylonians started a tradition of welcoming each new year with a massive religious festival called Ikitu. I'm very sorry if I said that wrong, but I said it with confidence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Ikitu. Oh, that's weird. Oh my god, I found a typo. Okay, sorry. The there's two. They wrote this twice, and one of them is a kitu, and the other one is a tiku. They swapped it. So part oh. one of them is correct. Sorry. <laughs> the celebration uh, was the mythical victory of the Babylonian sky god Marduk, other uh, over the evil sea goddess Tiamat. Tiamat, you got it. <laughs> New Year's Eve activities have certainly evolved since then, and today the holiday is best known as a time to reflect over the previous year, while also setting intentions for the year ahead. So, uh, with that, my intentions are to keep doing this podcast with you guys. Guys, we are almost up on a year. Like, we're closer to a year than not. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's just crazy. Happy New Year when this comes out! Yeah! (laughs) Uh, Erin! I think you're up, man. Yeah, I'd say now let's bring it down with some slow tunes. Yeah, and this one is a is an interesting doozy. I, I so. knew she was gonna say mm-hmm. the word doozy. All right, mm-hmm. I'm ready. It's a doozy of a day, officer. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'm ready. <laughs> Name that movie, anybody? Oh, Tucker and Dale versus Evil. Yep. Oh, love that movie. I I, I've seen it. I've seen it. I've seen it. I just oh. don't know it that well. Yeesh. Sorry. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> it's good. It's fun. Fun little romp. All right. The story I have today was requested by our listener, Natalie. I will be covering the murder of Robert Wong, which is considered one of Washington, D.C.'s most mysterious homicide cases. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Fancy. Robert Wong was born in Manhattan on June 1st, 1974, and grew up in Brooklyn, New York, as a fourth-generation Chinese-American. He was salutatorian of his high school class and went on to attend the College of William and Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia, as a James Monroe Scholar, which is very remarkable since only 10% of undergraduates are, like, selected for it. Oh, wow. wow. (laughs) Is there an echo? Oh, Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Owen Wilson. (laughs) Excuse me. Yeah. I'm getting so old, all my joints are. I, I <laughs> yeah, we are that. on the Mama. floor. <laughs> uh, yes, too, we are. So that We're help. a position uh, from uh, episode one. We are in Sarah's living room. Mm-hmm. It's like the magic is still here. Except for I didn't make Aaron sit underneath my closet. Do you remember last time when you had like my whole? Yeah, oh, this closet. is true. So yes. that it would be like not. Oh well, we yeah. brought all your your rollout cart of clothes. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think we're doing better this time, but yeah. I guess yeah, we'll yeah, see. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So there, Robert became friends with senior Joseph Kreiss, an openly gay male who worked as a campus organizer and was president-elect of the Student Assembly. The two became fast friends, and Joseph introduced Robert to the student government, where he was assigned to a presidential advisory council position. 
They also both took part in an honor society, and they both majored in public policy. Even when Joseph graduated and um, left for the University of Virginia, the two men stayed in touch. Robert, who had earned the nickname the Congressman, graduated from the College of William and Mary in 1996 and received an award for the countless service projects he had been involved in. He continued his studies at the University of Pennsylvania, where, with some guidance from Joseph, he received his law degree with honors. Okay. Wow. Mm -hmm. Fresh out of law school, Robert got a job as a law clerk to Judge Raymond Jackson of the Federal District Court for the Eastern District of Virginia. He switched to commercial real estate law and worked for six years as an attorney for Covington and Burling at their Washington, D.C. firm. According to Wikipedia, as part of Robert's public service responsibilities for the firm, he served as pro bono general counsel for the Organization of Chinese Americans and the Museum of Chinese in America. I don't think this guy slept. Do you need a nap? Right. Okay. Man. Robert later met Catherine Yu, a lawyer on the staff of an American Bar Association commission in Chicago at a diversity conference, and the two struck up a long-distance relationship. They married in 2003 and lived in um, Fairfax County, where three years later, he left Covington and Burling for a general counsel position for Radio Free Asia, which broadcasts news to Asian countries whose governments um, censor their media. Oh, that's cool. Okay. Yeah, that was pretty cool. All right, it's moving up, man. Yeah. Damn. Okay, okay. Kathy described her husband as an able leader when he needed to be, but someone who, quote, was most comfortable being the man behind the scenes so that the man at center stage would truly shine, end quote. His years of support for many Asian American organizations led him to become president-elect of the Asian Pacific American Bar Association's Washington area chapter. So he's. If you say this yeah. guy's like 24, I'm going to scream. I was gonna say, I'm <laughs> no, no, no. I need to cancel the podcast. I yeah. need to go to school. I got to go. No, no, no. Not I around. Nothing. No, not around our age. He was in his 30s, though. So he did accomplish a lot. Do you know how close <laughs> that is for some of us? At hey, this hey, hey, no, that is true. Shh, listen, listen. <laughs> but we're going to ignore that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm young forever. <laughs> On August 2nd, 2006, Robert, who had been general counsel at Radio Free Asia for about two months, had worked all day, attended an evening seminar, and stayed in town late to introduce himself to the night shift staff. His college friend, Joseph Price, who had been working as an attorney handling trademark litigation at Errant Fox, was chairman and general counsel of Equality Virginia, a gay rights group, and operated as a legal advocate for the gay community, lived in a $1.25 million three-story townhouse on 1509 Swan Street, Northwest in D.C., um, just about a mile from Robert's office. Does anyone want to send us money? Because I've never felt so poor. <laughs> I'm uh, a little worried about Mr. <laughs> Mr. His friend, Joseph. Is that I thing? think it's fine. They're going to band together Joseph, yeah. to okay. find criminals. Yeah, like, I think that's where this is going and like not a totally different direction. That's where it has to go. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. right. Erin, keep that in the back of your head. (laughs) And listen in. And drop it out the window. Yeah. (laughs) It's gone. Chuck it out the window. Yeah. (laughs) Instead of taking a late night ride back home on the metro, Robert made plans about two weeks in advance to stay the night at Joseph's place. So 35-year-old Joseph lived with his domestic partner, 40-year-old Victor Zaborski, a marketing executive for the Milk Processor Education Program, who worked on the famous Got Milk campaign. Oh, okay. Yeah. And he also That's lived... Yeah, uh-huh. 
He also lived with housemate um, 36-year-old Dylan Ward, a trained chef who Joseph had helped get a fundraising job with Equality Virginia and who was studying to become a massage therapist. All right. Their talents are so diverse. Yes, yes. I'm over here like, I'm kind of a loud human. Like, yeah. what do you need that Is that for? a skill? <laughs> can God, I put I that can. on my resume? I, I fucking hope so. <laughs> I can hot glue. Hot glue. Fuck me. Never mind. I can hot glue ribbons into bows. I mean, you're good with a cricket, a vinyl. People like bows. Thing. Yeah. So beat that. I can't. I can't. <laughs> I mean, no, I can't either. That's where my skills end. That's <laughs> Robert had met and become friends with Victor and Dylan through Joseph, and they all seemed to get along. Um, They had even thrown Robert a 30th birthday party at their townhouse. Um, Robert called his wife, quote, upbeat and happy, end quote, around 930 that evening to let her know what he was up to in his plan. He told her goodnight and that he loved her before hanging up. The Radio Free Asia staff told detectives that Robert arrived at 10.22 p.m. And after shaking hands and introducing himself to the employees, he called Joseph from his office, telling him he was on his way over. Robert arrived at the Swan Street townhouse a few minutes later and had planned to finish catching up with Joseph over an early breakfast in the morning before heading back to work. 911 dispatchers received a call from the 1509 Swan Street Northwest residence at approximately 11.49 p.m., the caller, Victor Zaborski, claimed that an intruder had broken in and stabbed their friend, Robert Wong, who had been sleeping in their second floor guest room. When asked where the blood was coming from, he told the dispatcher it looked like it was coming from like Robert's stomach. And when asked if um, he was conscious, he said Robert wasn't. However, at one point during um, the whole like seven minute call, he said he was upstairs and he wasn't sure if Robert was breathing. He can... Okay. I mean, I don't know. I'm not a medical person. I don't think I would know for sure if you guys are breathing. Yes. The little thing about that, though, is because he's upstairs. So it's three stories. So he's on the third floor. And then Robert's on the second floor. Oh. Yeah. Uh, Okay. Mm -hmm. So So he's saying... You really don't know if he's breathing or not. Yes. Okay. Yes. Also, how do you know? Okay. All right. Mm -hmm. I see where you're going, I think. Yeah. He continued to tell the dispatcher that his partner was downstairs with the victim, and he was told to run upstairs and quickly get a hold of 911. The dispatcher instructed Victor to go downstairs, get some towels, and apply pressure to Robert's wounds until paramedics arrived. From what I could make out from the call, I think he said Robert was breathing, and he continued to tell the dispatcher that, you know, they needed help to get there right away. Okay. Regarding the intruder, Victor told the dispatcher between bouts of heavy breathing, quote, we have no idea. We have no descriptions. We heard the chime, as in like the sound their like alarm made. Mm-hmm. Um, and we heard the screams from our friend. And so we came running downstairs, end quote. He also mentioned that the intruder had used one of their kitchen knives and they weren't sure if the intruder was still in the house or not. He stayed on the phone with the dispatcher and answered her questions until paramedics arrived. The call ended with Victor sobbing as he cried for help after spotting the paramedics' lights, and then he stated, quote, I think this back door isn't locked, end quote, before ending the call. Ooh. This has come under fire, which I feel like it always does. Right. Um, There are people who believe this was staged as part of a cover-up and that Victor's emotions were faked. You can find and listen to the 911 call on YouTube. And honestly, I can't tell whether he's truly genuinely like freaked out or not. Um, Because there are instances where he is sobbing and breathing heavily, but then there are moments he seems more composed. But that might be because like the dispatcher is asking him all these questions and he Mm -hmm. has to like pull himself together to answer them. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. Um, 
it's just been pretty scrutinized. I first want to go over Joseph, Dylan, and um, Victor's accounts of the night before jumping into the police investigation. Okay. So the three men were separated by detectives and brought to the police station, where they were questioned individually to see if their stories matched up. Mm-hmm. According to an affidavit regarding all three men's interviews, Robert arrived at the townhouse around 10.30 p.m., where Joseph and Dylan greeted him and later chatted in the kitchen while sipping waters. Victor had returned... Um, home earlier from a business trip and was already in bed at that time watching Project Runway when he heard Robert. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Sounds like a good night to me. (laughs) Don't bother the man. Yes. So he didn't like say hi to Robert. He heard him come in, but stayed in bed. He was, yeah, he He stayed in bed. He has things to do. Okay. Tim Gunn cannot wait. Mm -hmm. For no one. No. (laughs) According to Dylan, Joseph briefly went out the patio door because he apparently saw a spider on the light and was going to like take care of it. Um, Outside? Yes. Let the spider be. I I hate spiders and I'm. Mm -hmm. And then. Okay. Yeah. And then he told detectives um, he might have forgotten to lock the door when he returned inside. You're right. It was the spider's fault. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh-huh. Okay. Goddamn, Charlotte, get it together. <laughs> I believe it. Completely. thousand percent. Okay. All mm-hmm. right, fine. <laughs> Robert was shown to the second floor guest bedroom where Joseph and Dylan told him how to convert, like, the loveseat sofa into a bed for him to sleep on. I'm sorry, he's in a mansion and he has to sleep on a bed. What? Okay, Aaron. It sounds mm-hmm. like a ritzy townhouse and there's four people living, or three. Well, there's another. I'll get. There's another okay. roommate that I'll get to in a second too. Oh wait, then wait. Okay, hold on. I may be on your team. <laughs> Jump too fast. Do you I, know a team I'm on? I'm tripping on the hurdle, so go ahead. Okay. <laughs> um, Dylan, whose room was also on the second floor but located more at the back of the house, then returned to his room to read and take a sleeping pill before heading off to bed. By 11 p.m., Joseph went to the master bedroom located on the third floor, and as he was drifting off to sleep next to Victor, they were woken by the sound of their security chime, which only went off when an exterior door of the house was opened. And apparently their alarm, like, wasn't set either, which is just another interesting thing to Mm -hmm. note. Mm -hmm. They weren't worried at that particular moment, though, and didn't check what made the chime go off. They believed their basement tenant, Sarah Morgan, what? Yeah, isn't that weird? <laughs> you said you wouldn't use our real name, Karen. <laughs> listen, listen. Wow. We don't have to explain our choices Ooh, to you. What a coincidence. <laughs> okay, this is cool. I feel famous. Yeah. <laughs> so they believed um, uh, Sarah Morgan had gone out hours earlier, um, who had gone out hours earlier, had returned, even though she had told them she was going to like be out of town that night and not uh, come back. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Minutes later, however, the two heard what they described as a low scream coming from the direction of the guest bedroom. Joseph and Victor went to investigate, and Victor let out a scream when they discovered Robert's bloody body lying on the love seat. According to Joseph, he told Victor to go upstairs and dial 911 while he stayed in the guest bedroom to check on Robert, who had a boning knife from their kitchen butcher block lying on his stomach. He moved the knife and placed it on an end table and then lifted Robert's shirt and saw his chest covered with blood. Idiot. You leave the knife. You take... You gotta leave the knife in. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't in. It was just like lying on him. I I meant it as like, don't touch it with your hands. Yes, exactly. Yes. Sorry, Sarah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but no, leave leave it in. If it's in your body, wait till you the hospital, let them do it. Just, yeah. Just pro tip. Don't, yeah. (laughs) Don't touch. 
don't touch <laughs> very weird your first thing is to let me get rid of this pesky thing excuse yeah. me mm-hmm. yeah at this point dylan was woken up by the commotion and made his way to the guest bedroom to see what was going on joseph used towels to stop robert's bleeding until paramedics arrived Robert was transported to the George Washington University Hospital, but by that point, it was too late to save him, no! and he was pronounced dead at 12.25 in the morning. Not Robert! I know. Damn it. It's really sad. <laughs> Officers at the scene did not buy the intruder story and were pretty suspicious of Joseph, Dylan, and Victor right off the bat. Mm-hmm. According to Paul Dugan's reporting for the Washington Post, Paramedics and police officers arrived at the townhouse at 11.54 p.m. to find Dylan and Victor clothed in robes like they had just recently showered, and all of the men's reactions didn't sit well with them. None of them appeared to be freaking out. They were all fairly calm. They didn't offer much insight into the situation either. When paramedics got to the second floor, they spotted Dylan and asked him what was going on, but he didn't say anything and just went back into his room. Oh. What? Mm Mm-hmm. Is he... Hearing impaired? No. Okay. Well, There's then. paramedics also in your house at midnight, but like no big deal. Like it's yeah. fine. So Robert's body was discovered on the second floor, lying on a love seat in one of the bedrooms. His back was on top of the covers and sheets, his head on a pillow, his arms by his side, and quote, the comforter and sheets were neatly turned down at a 45 degree angle, end quote, seemingly undisturbed. Sorry, I. <laughs> That's this thing. I was trying to do the angle of the blanket. Yep. <laughs> Sorry, I'm here. I'm here. Mm-hmm. He had been stabbed with a knife three times in the chest and abdomen. Joseph was also in the room, sitting on the edge of the bed with his back to the door, wearing only a pair of underwear. However, I've heard he was also wearing a robe too. So mm-hmm. not sure okay. if he was also wearing a robe at that time. According to Crime Junkie, seasoned paramedics Jeffrey Baker and Tracy Weaver noted that Joseph wasn't touching Robert's body, let alone applying any pressure to his wounds. Baker was very disturbed by this, and when he went to check on Robert, he made sure to keep Joseph, like, in his sights just to see if he had, like, any weapons on him. Whoa. Oh. Mm -hmm. So right away. Yeah, he was just not having, like, getting any good vibes from him. Interestingly, Robert's wallet and Mavado watch, which is not a cheap watch, by the way, were sitting on a table in plain view at the foot of the bed. Even stranger, there were apparently no signs of a struggle and little blood was actually found on his body um, or in the room. According to Weaver, one of Robert's wounds is big enough to, quote, fit your fingers into, end quote. Ew. <laughs> so she was surprised to find only a few small bloodstains on the sheets and pillow he was laying on. Baker told the Guardian that Robert's abdomen appeared to have been wiped off also, so similar to how someone would clean a window, since there were some spots of blood on Robert's chest, but they didn't appear to have, like, flowed from his wounds. That's really bizarre. Mm -hmm. Also to Weaver, it seemed that Robert's body had been showered, redressed, and placed in the bed. The whole crime scene just seemed, like, completely off. It sounds staged. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was like, he he was moved. Mm-hmm. Robert's Blackberry was discovered at the scene and taken into evidence. There was no proof of forced entry and nothing had been taken from the home. So if an intruder had done this, why go out of his way to kill Robert without taking any of the valuables in the house? That's not a robber. That's not a robber motive right there. Yeah. And then go to the second floor specifically. Mm-hmm. Casual. Yep. Mm-hmm. And no other bedrooms, even though there's like five million others. Like whatever. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
Detectives form their own theory, which they have um, been scrutinized for. In an affidavit, a detective wrote, quote, these three males describe themselves as a family using the term um, polyamorous or polyamorous, I'm not sure, um, to polyamorous to describe their relationship, end quote. They learned that at some point Joseph became involved in a dominant submissive sexual relationship with Dylan. Um, but there was no information that stated whether a physical relationship was going on between Victor and Dylan. Um, detectives initially, so there's, you know, they're all in this relationship. Detectives initially theorized that Robert was involved in a sex game that got out of control. But when they learned more of Robert's past and the fact that he wasn't gay or bisexual, they determined that the three men wanted Robert to become a part of their family and was murdered in an elaborate sexual assault plan. Oh my God. (laughs) I'm sorry. There's no way that's true. This is what they thought. And they threw it out there. This seems like a little biased because they're... Does it? Does it really? (laughs) Yeah. Because they choose to live their life the way they want to. Yes. Jesus. I mean, do I think that they're innocent? No. But I don't think it's because of that. Mm -hmm. What are they going to say next? They were sacrificing him to the gay devil? Yeah. Well, Detective Daniel Wagner thought this was the obvious theory as he questioned Joseph, stating, quote, I got three homosexuals in the house and I got one straight guy. What's he doing over there? What's he doing over there? You are coming to Jesus tonight. That's what is going on tonight. End quote. He made that up? I also, guess he did. <laughs> they've been friends since but like early college. Yeah. Like, f- just because mm-hmm. someone's gay doesn't mean they want to sleep with you. Ooh. <laughs> it's very, yes, it's no, very mind-blowing. Okay. I'm just, oh, okay. Because <laughs> to me, it's always crazy when someone's like prejudiced. Mm-hmm. I think it's never really happening anymore. That seems like I am incorrect. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Ooh, yeah. Joseph told Wagner, quote, I know Victor and Dylan better than I know my mom. There is no chance on the face of the earth that anybody did anything to Robert. They couldn't even spank a child that was being bad. End quote. Bad, bad. Um, <laughs> Any other phrase, please. <laughs> Crime Junkie also made a note to mention um, that apparently Joseph, like, continuously asked investigators about, like, Dylan's whereabouts and whether he was finished being interrogated and if he knew he could get a lawyer, which does seem very odd. Um, But maybe that has to do with their, like, Dom-sub relationship. And I don't, yeah. I don't know. Now, if the men did have something to do with the murder. They didn't reveal anything, um, at least not during their interrogation. They all denied having a sexual relationship with Robert. And even when investigators attempted to turn the men against each other, their stories never changed and they never admitted to committing any wrongdoing. After hours of questioning through the night and the early hours of Thursday morning, the men left the station, hired criminal defense attorneys, and refused to talk further with investigators. Okay. I don't actually think it's that suspicious. But they would do Doing that. that? No, I don't think it's Also, because the cops are already a little prejudiced towards you. So um, I can see where, like, I need a lawyer. Like, this is not going to go well. No. Yeah. Yeah. Yet again, do I think they did something? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Probably a good idea, boys. Mm-hmm. When Robert's autopsy results came out, it raised even more questions than answers. Deputy DC medical examiner Lois Goslinowski reported that two tiny spots from broken capillaries were found in Robert's right eye and left eyelid. These broken blood vessels typically occur in victims of strangulation or suffocation as they are fighting for air. She noted that this asphyxia event, though, was not fatal, and Robert's cause of death was from the stab wounds to his heart, pancreas, and right lung. Now, 
She noted that stab wounds are typically irregularly shaped since a victim obviously would be moving around and trying to fight for their life. But in Robert's case, his stab wounds were perfectly clean and symmetrical, and there were no defensive cuts on his hands or like anywhere else on his body. He was, oh my God. They killed him when he was like unconscious or something. Oh my God. The wounds were four to five inches deep, which was inconsistent with the five and a half inch long Wusthof boning knife's blade um, that was in the room. The boning knife also had blood on both sides of the blade, but an expert in blood splatter patterns examining the knife um, examined it and determined that there was no blood on its cutting edge, suggesting that this knife wasn't the murder weapon. They just dipped it and like they're doing paint? Get out of here. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Also, uh, Goslinowski said it was unlikely that the killer would have stopped the wound short enough and consistently enough each time rather than just plunging the whole blade, yeah. you know, yeah. into the body. Yeah. Um, also, interestingly, she discovered Robert's own semen around his, like, genitals and rectum. So that was another, like, odd discovery. Okay. Um, that it was his own. Oh. Mm-hmm. So not someone else's, his own. There were six needle marks discovered on his chest, right foot, left hand, and the left side of his neck that had occurred before his death. The uh, toxicology lab tested his blood for a slew of drugs to determine what Robert had been injected with, but unfortunately the results came back negative. Except, according to Crime Junkie, they never tested for paralytics, and they, I guess, didn't like get enough blood samples saved to have more toxicology tests done. So they'll okay. never know what he was injected with. That's kind of bullshit. I know, right? It seems like a big thing to know. I agree. <laughs> it wasn't health things. And like nope. you did all these other tests, but not that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Even with this damning report, no one was arrested. Interestingly, even though they were under police scrutiny, Joseph, Dylan, and Victor attended Robert's funeral, and Joseph was even one of the pallbearers. So yeah. So the family is thinking, like, there's no way they did this. At least not the beginning, I don't think. Okay. Um, throughout the story, at some point, like, Kathy just, like, stopped talking to reporters and everyone. So I think she was just kind of done with it. Yeah. Yeah. The Washington Post reported that detectives had spent more than three weeks examining the townhouse and processing the evidence. They had taken the men's computers, appliances, slabs of floors, walls, and staircases, bags of sludge from drain traps, and boxes full of the men's belongings. Drug dogs were taken throughout the house, but according to Crime Junkie, detectives only found um, ecstasy, even though the drug dogs who were trained to sniff out cocaine, weed, and opiates did hit on, like, one place in Dylan's room and in an area of Joseph's room. Um, But they didn't find, apparently, any, like, drugs in those areas. In Dylan's room, detectives did discover a large collection of sadomasochistic devices, sex toys, books, and a three-piece cutlery set with an empty (gasps) space for a smaller knife, which didn't match the size of the knife left in the guest bedroom, but did match the length of the wounds. So there was no knife in there, but the size of it matched. This is where Scooby-Doo takes the mask off the villain. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Could have gotten away with it too. (laughs) Metal kid. (laughs) After applying forensic chemicals throughout the guest room, police reported trace amounts of blood evidence on the walls, floors, sofa bed, and door frame. However, the officers apparently messed up and didn't actually apply the chemical correctly, which not only like reacts to blood, but with other substances containing protein or iron. Ew. 
A former law enforcement official told the Washington Post that after this misapplication, detectives weren't able to confirm through lab tests whether the trace amounts of blood evidence um, was actually blood. And apparently this chemical, I don't know if it's still used today, is not super reliable either. So who's to say that the evidence would have been used? It was called like an like Ashley's reagent or something. Oh. So I was waiting for an Aperol spritz and I was like, oh, a drink does sound fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Don't mind if I do. (laughs) Yeah. So just wanted to add that. A donk who was trained to sniff out blood and decay was then brought into the home and it did like hit on a drain outside of the house in like the back courtyard and it did hit in the dryer's lint trap. So one theory going around that I heard from um, specifically on Crime Junkies episode was that one or all of the men used a hose outside to dry blood off of their clothes and body, which traveled down the drain, and then they threw the bloody clothes into the dryer, and that's, like, what the dog hit on. But that's never been confirmed. That's complete speculation. Okay. Mm -hmm. I like speculation, though. Yes, same. (laughs) (laughs) Another shady discovery was the white towel that Joseph had seemingly used to apply pressure to Robert's wounds. How do you guys think the towel would have looked like? Oh, cover in blood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, and, like, if he had done it correctly, like, like one area would probably be, like, really concentrated, mm-hmm. and then it'd be... Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I found a picture of it, and I'm going to show you both. What? Is this... That like, looks like I got a bloody nose. Mm-hmm. Is this... Have they already washed it, or is this fresh from the scene? Fresh from the scene. Okay. Mm-hmm. Are they sure he didn't get a bloody nose, like she said? Like, I, that's what it looks like. It looks like, y'all, like, that was the only cloth, and I had a bloody nose, and you just handed it to me. And mm-hmm. that's... No, it's like whenever... What's that movie? She's a diamond, blue diamond. You mean sateen? Yes. Yeah. It reminds me of, like, whenever <laughs> she... Yeah. yeah. Whenever she coughs into her napkin, because she has... Oh. <laughs> She's talking about Moulin Rouge and, yes, and Nicole yes. Kidman's character when she finally realizes that she has TB when she coughs into a handkerchief and there's like a large drop of blood. That's the amount of blood on this sheet. Yeah. <laughs> like it's the longest When I'm saying yeah. it looks I like I wipe this. my nose from a bloody nose, that's what it looks like. Yes. Like, wow. <laughs> so, Thank you so much for that. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> we would have been here a long time. Diamond in the rough. <laughs> She is part of the Diamond Dogs. That's a different mm-hmm. story. Let's go. Focus on you, Aaron. Oh, all right. <laughs> so those few small blood stains, um, according to an affidavit, quote, were consistent with the pattern one would expect to see if someone placed the knife on the towel, folded the towel over the blade of the knife, and swiped the blood from the towel <gasps> onto the knife. End quote. Oh. Mm-hmm. And after placing the knife under a microscope, over 10 tiny white cotton fibers were discovered, but no gray fibers from Robert's t-shirt were found on it. Okay. Okay. Let's get him. Oh my God. This is so good. Mm-hmm. This is crazy. Another key, okay. another key piece of evidence was Robert's uh, Blackberry. When it was examined, they came across some unsent emails that contradicted like their timeline. <gasps> An email allegedly from Robert to his wife, typed at 11.05 p.m., detailed how he had just taken a shower and was heading to bed. Another email typed at 11.07 p.m. to a colleague at Radio Free Asia confirming a lunch uh, date was also discovered. Investigators believed this was part of the cover-up and that the emails were drafted after Robert had been killed. However, in yet another misstep, the emails were unable to be further examined. 
The Secret Service was tasked with copying the device's hard drive. However, I guess there was some miscommunication because the BlackBerry was retrieved by police before the data had been copied over. And by the time investigators realized their mistake, it had been given back to Radio Free Asia and recycled. Awesome. Okay, so we're at literal misstep number three now. Mm-hmm. It sucks. They're, they're actually trying a little bit. Yep. And then they, <sighs> they shoot keep... themselves in the foot. Yep. All right. Well, keep messing up. <laughs> okay. The FBI crime labs and analysis of the evidence apparently took quite a bit of time too, um, to Kathy Wan's frustration. And in the span of a year, Robert's case had switched prosecutors' hands like three times. Whoa. Okay. Mm-hmm. Detectives were at a complete loss. The intruder theory had way too many holes in it to be believable. They thought that Dylan's story about the spider in the patio light was a complete lie to give an explanation for how someone could have snuck into the house. Mm-hmm. Wait, Dylan's the one that talked about the spider. So he mentioned that Joseph went out. Jo- oh. So he told the story. He okay. said Joseph went out, he saw a spider, checked on it, and then Joseph may have forgotten to lock the door. Dylan is also the one with the missing knife. Correct. Dylan is, yes, missing knife. And where's Sarah Morgan? Well, she was out of town. Oh. Yeah, we remember? Traveling. She really was. Okay. Yes, she we was were in yeah, out of town. We're, recording we're, a podcast. We were busy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can't be bothered to answer that. Yeah. Even if the door was unlocked and an intruder came in, they would have had to climb a seven-foot locked fence to get onto the property. Oh, my God. Ignored the security chime going off grabbed a knife from the kitchen, made it to the front of the house, passing by a whole bunch of valuables, and then made his way up the stairs to the second floor undetected. At the very top of the stairs was Dylan's room, but instead of going there, the intruder would have had to turn and um, go down the uncarpeted hallway, making his way to the opposite end of the house without being heard, and reach the guest room where he incapacitated and stabbed Robert. He then left the murder weapon, not taking the wallet or watch sitting out in plain sight, and left the house with no one spotting him. Totally believable. <laughs> and there is no blood, like, just throughout the house? Nope. That's a tidy murderer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In and out real fast. Even for a stabbing. He must have brought even a change for, of clothes. Even yep. for a robber. He's doing really good. Yeah. Okay. Well, then you have to think of it. See, it's the, it's the needle marks for me. Because we that's what that. that's what gets to me. Yeah, there's it's it's not like one like little scratch scratch. This is like literal Set, little yeah. Like, like what'd you say, twelve or nine? Seven. Okay. Anything over one I think is too many. Anything over yeah. zero. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So you're telling me that an intruder brought that with him? Right. It just doesn't make sense. Right. Because you know, if and when an intruder slash robber does encounter a person, you know, it's definitely like thought out murder. It's definitely not like reactive to the situation mm-hmm. ever. This is something Riverdale would put in one of their episodes. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's 12 needle marks. <sighs> Start injecting themselves with jingle jangle. Yes. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> that comes back soon. Woo. <laughs> Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Oh my Lord. According to The Guardian, this theory seemed even less likely when a police search determined that cobwebs and dust throughout the house were undisturbed. However, there appear to be only circumstantial evidence regarding the theory that one or all of the housemates had something to do with Robert's murder. Um, I think they scored through all of their emails. Um, they were thoroughly searched, but none of them suggested that they had been planning to hurt Robert. Um, and... Going back to Robert's past, it didn't hint that he had a secret lifestyle, and he was even, like, wearing a mouth guard to bed, which suggests, like, he was going to sleep, and he had no idea, like, what was about to happen to him. 
That's sad. Mm-hmm. With no suspects and no arrests made, Joseph, Dylan, and Victor, by all appearances, got on with their lives. Joseph continued his law practice, even winning a groundbreaking child custody case. Victor continued working for Milk um, PEP and shared in an Effie Award for the advertising industry for his work on the Got Milk campaign. And Dylan finished massage school in February 2007, where he later moved to Florida and worked at a spa. The investigation into Robert's murder continued, and detectives actually looked at Joseph's younger brother, Michael, as a potential suspect. Three weeks after, um, excuse me, I think this was supposed to be three months after Robert's murder, he had broken into Joseph's townhouse with an accomplice, stealing $7,000 worth of items. Michael was later treated for substance abuse, and even though detectives tried to link him to Robert's murder, they found no evidence to suggest that he was the killer. Defense lawyers stated that Joseph and Victor spent $250,000 to fix the townhouse after the police search. They did uh, end up... Huh. Okay. Like, new flooring? Yeah, because they had, like, ripped stuff up in the walls. <laughs> they ended up selling the home for... Yeah. Fine. Yeah, Fine. that is, yeah. I mean, I'd be pretty pissed. <laughs> Listen, I... Go on. I'm sorry. I was being being snooped. I'm sorry. (laughs) They ended up selling their home, though, for $1.47 million and bought an investment property in Miami Shores, Florida. Dylan moved to the house um, because he was around the area as a caretaker, and Joseph and Victor leased a luxury apartment in DuPont Circle, about three blocks from Swan Street. In October 2008, the case picked up again when Dylan was arrested in Florida for obstruction of justice, and three weeks later, Joseph and Victor were arrested for the same charge, which was punishable by up to 30 years in prison. Oh. All three, so not for the crime, just obstruction of justice. Okay. Um, and So all three men were accused of tampering with the crime scene, disposing of evidence, and lying to detectives. An affidavit described the prosecution's theory on how Robert was restrained, possibly by the attacker suffocating him with a pillow, further incapacitated him by whatever drug he was injected with, sexually assaulted him, um, and then murdered him. He was likely unconscious or paralyzed when he was stabbed. The wounds also matched a knife detectives received from a manufacturer, which was a duplicate of the missing knife from Dylan's cutlery set. Oh, no. As for the semen being Robert's own, investigators theorized that one of the devices found in Dylan's bedroom was used on him. This specific device was an electrocution unit, which can produce electric ejaculation, even if the person is immobilized. What? Mm Mm-hmm. I don't understand. I sincerely don't understand. They shocked him and he jizzed himself, even though he was immobilized. Yeah. Because it's such like a jolt. Mm Mm-hmm. This is why I enjoy being a vanilla person, because that is terrifying. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. This matched investigators' findings into Joseph's internet search history. He had a profile on alt.com, a fetish-oriented site where he posted under the name Colicate. On this site, Joseph listed electro-torture and a dozen other sexual practices, like described explicitly among his activities enjoyed. He also made posts seeking a third man to join a sadomasochistic relationship with, um, quote, me and my Dom, end quote. Yeah. After Robert was murdered, they believe the three men covered up their crime by washing the victim, cleaning the guest room, placing Robert's body on the cleaned sheets and remade bed, um... They disposed of the knife used to kill him and replaced it with another to mislead detectives, all before calling 911. This call is also believed to have been delayed since, according to a report from their next-door neighbors, they heard a scream about 20 minutes before the call was made. 
Okay. Mm -hmm. Yes. That makes more sense how the crime scene was. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or who's to say it was Robert that screamed? He could have already been knocked out and they just had someone. Well, if you remember, Victor had said he screamed. So if we were to go with his story and he screamed, then you would think the call would have happened a lot earlier. Because then he screamed and Joseph told him to go upstairs and call 911. Okay. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yes. Because remember what they heard was like a low, low, like guttural yeah, okay. kind yeah, of yeah, scream yeah. Okay. or a groan. Thank you for refreshing Is what I would brain. describe it. Yeah. Yes. The defense said otherwise, claiming that the prosecution's theory was based solely on prejudice and circumstantial evidence. They questioned how the three men could have pulled all of that off in 79 minutes or 42 minutes if you believe that Robert wrote the emails on this Blackberry. I don't know. It's just, it's hard to believe both. Um, especially if they had like little to no planning that they could have done all of that mm. and still had the time to clean the scene, clean themselves off and get their story straight. Mm, if they had, if they had this stuff to be, to inject him with, they had to have had some knowledge of like, okay, what do we do if this goes south? But then where are the, like, where is everything? You know what I mean? No right. drug, no need. They had to get the drugs from somewhere. Probably down that fucking drain. But where they get the drugs from, you know what I mean? Maybe they've and had the vials forever. and needles. Yeah, maybe I feel like there's forever. maybe I don't know. That's what blows my mind. I don't think mind. it's that hard to get that. I don't even know what it is. Like yeah, vial like. But I feel like that's something. Hard. Unless I guess they paid for stuff in cash. I don't know if they yeah. went somewhere and and they all live together. They could. They don't have to email or text about it. Well, I'm yeah, sure. yeah. <laughs> they had noted the email part, and I'm like, but they all live together. Yeah. <laughs> they 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 can like, talk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure they don't just talk about like what's for dinner. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but it's still crazy too because they're they were all, you know, like clean cut men, no previous records. I mean crazier things have happened. So Yeah, yeah. Um the defense also put the prosecution's investigation under fire and questioned how it was handled. Um something else I found according to Juliana Brint's reporting for the Washington City paper, lead detective Brian Wade testified that he had compared fingerprints of possible burglary suspects to prints found on the nightstand in the guest room, but no matches came of it. Okay. Um, However, it was learned that he had only tested fingerprints on five suspects, and the only two names he would reveal were Michael Joseph and his partner, um, Lewis Hinton. Um, The mishandling of Robert's Blackberry and the crime scene chemical situation was also put on blast. I mean, yeah. (laughs) Yep. If we're looking for like a quote unquote fair. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Take that and run with it. Joseph, Dylan, and Victor chose a trial by judge rather than a trial by jury, and on June 29th, uh, 2010, Judge Lynn Leibovitz found the three men not guilty of charges of conspiracy, tampering with evidence, and obstruction of justice. In her almost one-hour ruling, she stated that she believed the men knew who murdered Robert, but she was not convinced beyond a reasonable doubt that they committed the offenses they were charged with. Mm-hmm. Kathy Wong would later win a civil case against the men for their failure to save her husband when he was injured. They did settle this outside of court for um, an unknown amount of money. The investigation and the trial led to neighbors of the accused men making a website called WhoMurderedRobertWong.com in an attempt to shed light um, and possibly help solve the case. As of today, though, no one has been charged with Robert's murder. Joseph, Dylan, and Victor have since resigned from their jobs and moved into Victor's aunt's 
um, two-story, um, 2,600-square-foot home located a bit outside of Washington, um, which I'm not sure if they were even still there today. And they have continued to just stay silent about the case. Paul Wagner, a reporter for Fox 5 DC, along with many others, believe that the three men know the true story of what happened that night, and prosecutor Glenn Kirshner agrees, even claiming that the defense team knows the truth and worked to cover up the crime to protect, uh, protect the family. And that is the story of the mysterious murder of Robert Wong. Okay, here's my only thing. Yeah. If you're going to kill someone, wouldn't you see them kill again? Because then, like, they're not serial killers, but, like, wouldn't you expect them to do it again? Or is it, like, I a see what you're saying. Thrill? It gets a big jump to just do that and not have any buildup and then not do it again. The only thing I could think of is that it was an accident. You know what I mean? Like, oh. they had no... In, I don't know. They had no... In, I, but that even doesn't make sense either, because then they stabbed him. So it's like, I don't know. I wonder if they stabbed Unless, him after he was already dead. Oh, 100%. But they, they said... Did. But the medical examiner said he died because of the stab wounds. He, not because of... He was unconscious when they stabbed yes. him. And they maybe thought it went too far, and then they stabbed him to try and cover it up. Maybe. Okay. To make it really seem like an intruder came and killed him, and... That's... Like, that's more believable than intruder, like, suffocating him. I don't know. It's There's so many questions than answers. And I don't know if we'll ever find out who did it. And it's really upsetting. Uh... So thanks, Natalie, for that. I went down a <laughs> rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Thanks, Natalie. <laughs> yeah, you get it this time. Yeah. No, really. Thanks, Aaron. I, I kind of remember that one from, mm. from Crime Junkie, but yeah, I, it's still, like, foggy, but it's... There's so many twists to it. I don't there know where are, I yeah. stand. I'm mad. Okay. Yeah. Mm. And Sarah, you have a downer for us today. <laughs> oh, yeah. Don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> so glad I went first. All right. Oh, yeah. I'm just going to cut to it. We're talking about survivor's guilt today. Ooh. And how come Joseph and blah, blah, and whatever his name is didn't have any? No, I'm just Because kidding. they did it. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. I'm, I know that's not what it is, but okay. I mean. It kind of could be. Yeah. Survivor's guilt is when you kill. It, if, no, if they sincerely had no part in it, you would feel survivor's mm-hmm. guilt because oh, yeah. how come okay. he got stabbed in yeah. the house? Yeah. It was like my last story I talked about. Yes. That term made me think of. Yep. Think of it. What? So um, for the Covina massacre, ah, one of correct. the kids was um, interviewed. Um, later on, he was an adult then when he was interviewed. But yeah, he felt guilty for leaving rather than like staying yeah. behind and trying to fight back. So that's what that. I would that's describe it as. Yeah. It is um, a mental condition that occurs when a person believes they have done something wrong by surviving a traumatic or tragic event when others did not, often feeling self-guilt. So basically what you just said. Sometimes they are upset by what they had to do to survive or something they didn't do to help someone else survive. So example would be the Donner Party. Oh. Here we go. For those (laughs) of you who don't know, um, I just read a book about it and I cannot stop talking about it. So here we go. They were a group of settlers that was traveling west in the mid-1800s. They took some bad advice from a con man who freaking said if they took a different path that he had miraculously discovered, they would cut so much time off of their journey. <laughs> oh, no. This is where Jim Halpert should be looking at the camera like, I don't believe a thing. <laughs> um, the con man had, had, in fact, not tested the route, and he also had just looked at a map and said, oh, yeah, that should work. <laughs> So the Donners had a lot of po- a lot of problems. They got stuck with no food for months. Only half of them survived, and many of them resorted to cannibalism. <gasps> the real life Oregon Trail. <laughs> it gets dark. Um, <laughs> if the cannibalism was not a hint, 
Here we well, go. Well, I didn't go into details for everyone's sake, but God bless. <laughs> they did wait until everyone like was dead to eat them. And then you would also Ugh. label who was in whose family so you don't eat your own family members. Oh my god. But the book you know, is really good. I read it. Um <laughs> But it's like a really good book. No, the writing of it was really good because I explained like the first time they did it, like no one could meet each other's eyes, but like you had oh, to I survive. Bet. Like they were well, almost dead yeah. for so long. So that's tough. <sighs> Cute. Anyway, so the survivors had a tough time with the guilt after surviving that. So only like 40 of the 80 people survived. Ooh. Can you imagine like going to regular life after that? No. Yeah. No. So that's an example of a uh, survivor's guilt. <laughs> it can also be Ooh. called survivor's syndrome, survivor disorder, AIDS survivor syndrome, and concentration camp syndrome. Oh. So like wow. a lot of psychology history, survivor's guilt was first identified in the 1960s. And this was a huge part not written fantastically this was in part <laughs> due to earlier research done by a dutch psychologist named eddie de wind mm. run like de wind eddie <laughs> i didn't even write that down that came to me <laughs> you are welcome <laughs> sarah take a drink man yeah, yeah. <laughs> bad pun bad pun okay mm. oh it was actually really good then will call me pun money fun enough i'm done oh, i'm so done here we go back to my facts um are you sure (laughs) (laughs) you got it (laughs) i am all in on this when helping mr dewind when helping holocaust survivors because yes that did happen in our not so distant past um psychologists realized a lot of the victims had similar feelings like i said we're going back down he coined the phrase concentration camp syndrome so when someone mentions concentration camp concentration camp syndrome what that applies to is someone who has survived a large adverse event like the holocaust or the rape of nan king which i'm sorry but i'm not um sidebar i learned this for this and now you also have to learn what this I is say, i don't know what you're yeah. i don't know what you're saying <laughs> we're done with that enough <laughs> page, um, page one is done guys yep <sighs> christmas spirit is over ladies and we all suffer together is my first line so here we go what a great end to 2020 Hey. Hey. <laughs> in 1937 China there was a war primarily between China and Japan serious I'm smiling because I know how bad it's going to be and I don't know how to transition here we go um, seems a world away from America but it's awful so hold on um, at some point in this war Chinese troops had to flee and leave their capital of Nanking I don't know if I'm saying that right but uh, that's what I got um, so it's now under Japanese rule okay not cool okay um, because they were still some Chinese who chose to stay there in their homes because it was their home. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Japan decided to break the resistance and here come the war crimes. An estimated 150,000 male prisoners of war were killed. Wow. An additional 50,000 male citizens were killed. So that's just anybody. And then at least 20,000 women and girls of all ages were raped. Uh, many of them are mutilated or killed in the process. Oh, oh, Jeez. oh. Okay. This was all in six weeks. What? Yeah. So needless to say, they were living in a hell because they were on the quote unquote wrong side of the war. Hmm. Um, but I would like to ask whoever you're all, like, whatever team you're on of someone who is committing war crimes like this, at what point do you say, hmm, am I on the right side of the war? whatever so for those six weeks yes six weeks the people of nanking endured 
love survivors with psychological issues, and many of them are classified as concentration camp syndrome. So we are talking a capital L large persecution survivors for this. Mm -hmm. Uh Uh-huh. Dr. Wind himself, that was the heaviest bit. We get, it gets more helpful now. Um, Dr. Wind himself was a concentrant. You mean the wind? I sure do. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Dr. DeWind himself, thank you. I hate myself. Was a concentration camp survivor. Oh, wow. Yeah, which in a way was really good because he had some insight as to what the others were feeling. Mm -hmm. And he concluded that, like I said before, there were definite psychological after effects, which again is very obvious now, but at the time, maybe it wasn't. Okay. He reported that survivors had symptoms of anxiety, depression, mood swings, intellectual impairment, social withdrawal, sleep disturbance and nightmares. I can only imagine loss of drives for things they once loved. You know, in those kinds of situations, I feel like you have every right to feel all of those. Uh, yeah. So, yep. But the weirdest part is that a lot of them would also comment that they felt guilty for surviving the event when others did not. So a lot of times these people were their family, their friends, acquaintances. Yeah. I mean, nothing has happened to me like that, but can you imagine living through it and then having to walk away like, well, what do I do now? No, yeah. it's like it's mm-hmm. like PTSD plus mm-hmm. more because mm-hmm. you feel the guilt as well. It's kind of like, um, there was that, uh, forgive me, I, this could be the wrong place, but I think it was in Missouri where there was like a, like a, what are they called? Like we have like ride go-karts and play games outside, like bumper like cars. Like a swing around fun town? Yes. Yeah. Sorry, uh-huh. for everyone who doesn't know, it's like a lame Six Flags. I don't know how else to describe it. <laughs> not even. Yeah. Not, it's not roller coasters, but it's just like outdoor games. Like like a fair. Like mini golf. Yeah. 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 Little well, go-karts. Usually, yeah, go-karts and then like the baseball. They'll yes. have that. Yeah. So this place, I, sw- I think it was Branson. I could be cur- incorrect. There was like a boat and you would go out on the water and just do like a you just ride in this like ferry mm-hmm. and they were warned not to do it because the weather looked bad and they went out anyway and everyone died except for like two people. That was oh, wow. Yeah. That's been since we graduated college. Yeah. Oh no, I that was when I worked. Yeah, this oh, was like this was like two years ago. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yes. Never yep. mind. I know what you're talking about. So something like that, but Yeah, so any yeah. survivors of that would just be yeah. how could you? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um so Survivor's guilt can also affect anyone in the following situations. And this is survivor's guilt, not just the concentration camp syndrome. I know I kind of use them interchangeably, but it was built on top of the other one. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, Anyone who has witnessed a traumatic event, a transplant recipient, (gasps) parents who outlive their children, friends or family members of someone who has committed suicide, cancer survivors, and like I said, war veterans. Mm -hmm. So this... The war veterans one is huge because survivor's guilt is a symptom of PTSD, but I will give PTSD its own episode. So, Wow. Yes. Toss it away. <laughs> We're on page three, folks. It's dark. I want it out of my eyes. <laughs> um, while I did list initial symptoms before, I do want to list the actual symptoms of what we now associate with individuals suffering with survivor's guilt. Okay. So flashbacks to the traumatic event, obsessive thoughts about the event or situation, Irritability or anger, feelings of helplessness, lack of motivation, social social isolation, nausea, thoughts of suicide themselves, and seeing the world as an unfair and unsafe place. Mm-hmm. Which yet again, that all makes sense. Like you just yeah. saw the worst side of what could happen. Yeah. So if you are suffering with this, here's how to cope according to medicalnewstoday.com. 
Um, there is some research that shows most people with survivor's guilt will recover within a year without treatment. However, one out of three people will continue to have symptoms for three years or longer. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So to try to help with the process without a professional, someone should try to one, accept and allow the feelings. It may seem like you have irrational feelings, but this is how you're responding to trauma and it does not have to be rational. Two, connect with others. So do not, under any circumstances, keep these feelings to yourself. Yeah. If your loved ones don't understand what you're going through, I mean, don't blame them. It's not their fault, but you should seek, you know. Find a, someone who does. Yeah, or a support group. Like, anymore, there's so many things for people. Like, yeah. you'd never have to do things on your own. Three, use mindful techniques like grounding, which is actually pretty cool. It's where you focus on your breathing and then you feel nearby fabrics. Then you kind of count sounds that you can hear. So it kind of just brings you into the moment, which is supposed to help calm. Yeah. Um, and four is self-care. So take a bath, read and rest and anything that helps you relax. So if you're doing these things and still suffering from survivor's guilt, it is imperative that you seek treatment from a professional. There are therapists who specialize in trauma. So help is out there. Uh, be good to yourselves and don't beat yourself up about how you handle trauma. Mental health is never something you should be ashamed of. Here, here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. It sounds very like the coping mechanisms so do sound kind of similar to like a panic attack. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, very, I'm sure feels can escalate to feel like that very quickly. Well, especially if you are someone suffering with PTSD, like the flashbacks, the traumatic event, it may actually feel like a panic attack. Yeah. Like you may feel. Yeah. Whew. You're welcome. We got real dark there for a second. We did. But you do always end on a highlight with, you know, your little tagline. So it's, yeah, I'm, I'm thankful for that. Mm -hmm. I'm glad. <laughs> now and I'm glad his name was DeWind. <laughs> because I, yes. I, need, I need a drink, a heavy drink, and more Sarah puns. <laughs> you will. Once like, this is done. <laughs> the one funny part of your story. Thank you, Dr. DeWind. Yeah. Woo. You are DeWind beneath our wings. <laughs> Any more? You ready? You said you wanted more. Yes. <laughs> and with that, we're going to go ahead and wrap this bad boy up. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> Uh, like I said at the beginning, it should be coming out New Year's Day. So we hope your uh, 2021 is brought off with a good start, is uh, nothing like 2020, um, and that you keep supporting yeah. us in any way you can. We appreciate it. Again, as mentioned, if you have a topic or story idea and you want to email us, it is sinistersunrisepodcast at gmail.com. Um, we, of course, are, you know, hitting off 2020 or 2021 correctly with getting a TikTok. We are hip. So if you haven't checked it mm -hmm. out or followed us, it is sinister underscore sunrise underscore podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Underscores instead of spaces. That's just, yeah. 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 Um, and of course rate and review on iTunes. Um, that just helps us stay relevant and the big one find us on Facebook. So you can actually rate there too. So it's just nice. Just all the things. We oh. want to feel your love. So <laughs> just good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anything else? No. No. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Bye.